And Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the, in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Father, help us this morning as we go to your word. Help us to be faithful and true and responsive to your word. Amen. So what I want to do in this psalm is first I want to, I'm going to kind of go through what is David's experience here and just kind of outline like what we see, what David is, is proclaiming here. And then I want to have a question for us about that. And then I want to kind of look at how does David actually practice this and live, kind of live this out. Because the first thing you notice, and at least the first thing I notice in a psalm like this, is just how strong the language is. Right? Like this is, this is like the sappiest of love letters. Right? Like if you got something like this, many of us, if you got something like this, you'd be like, I'm pretty thick, right? And there can be a temptation to kind of look at this like language and say, I don't, I don't know if I can relate to that, right? Like my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Your steadfast love is better than life. I mean, it is extreme. And we've talked before how it would be a mistake to dismiss the Psalms, and especially David's Psalms, as just written by some kind of like over, just over emotional artist. Like Robbie and I were talking about music, and you want to talk about 80s and 90s and feeling old or whatever, but does anybody remember the season, the, the, the style of music called emo? Do you remember that? All right, show of hands. Come on, who are my people? All right, yeah. So, so emo is like this, like everything in life is just so, where you just like feel so deeply and just like screaming out these words and it's just like, oh, we feel it because of everything we've gone through in our 14 years and we just feel it, right? Like, and it's just all this emotion and like I could just imagine parents like listening to that and being like, seriously? Feels a little strong, right? And we can look at the Psalms like that. We just say like, okay, so David, you're just a little over, over emotional. It's just one of those types. And I'm just not that type. I'm just not that emotional. And so I can just kind of dismiss his language and put it over here in a box. But remember that this is King David. So this is the guy that comes upon, not, not a trained soldier. And when he gets wind that the army of God is cowering in fear from this giant, he says, well, I'll go fight him. 
And when they tell him, no, that's ridiculous, you are a youth, and you haven't been trained as a soldier, our best soldiers are afraid, you should not go, David kind of lays out his resume, and he says this. I think we have it on the screen. I don't have it here, but... He says, and and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, and listen to this, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and stand. I was uh, driving to a soccer tournament yesterday, and I saw cars along the side of the road. And I think that it's bear season. Is that right? Okay. Bear season. So I, there are dudes like walking along with a gun on their shoulder like they're going on a bear hunt, right? They're going to catch a big one. I don't know what they're doing. All I know is that I'm watching them do that and thinking, I'm good. I don't need to do that. I'm, I'm good. But they're doing that. I just want you to say like you, you got nothing on David here. David's resume for Saul is I watched, I've been watching the sheep forever. And when a bear or a lion would grab one, I would run that bear or lion down. I would strike it, take the sheep back. And if that lion gave me any attitude, I'd grab it by its mane and kill it. You're not tougher than David. You're just not. All right? That's David. The reason he writes this way is because this is his experience with God. The reason he uses these strong words are because this is what he knows of God. Because he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He knows it. It's not just something he has heard about. It's not a, a superstition to kind of take him into the battle to say, like, it's, the battle belongs to the Lord, and so I go out there. It's because he knows. He has experienced the profound grace and mercy and steadfast love of God. He has wept, and he has rejoiced, and he has danced. And he has questioned, and he has cried out, and he has yelled at, and he has received from. And so his language is not overstated, but in his mind, it's understated. So much so that he just keeps going on and on. Like in verse 6, where he says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. David has experienced the depth of these things. It's not just something he believes. It's not just a logical conclusion he has reached. It's not just what seems like the best bet or something that sounds right. He has experienced the reality that the steadfast love of God is better than life. And it pours out of his heart through these words. And so the 
the question for you and me this morning when you read something like that is, can you relate to that? Does your experience resonate with that? Like, I could just jump on to, like, okay, and then this is how he nurtured that, and this is how we should do that. But, but we have to always pause when you read things like that and say, is that me? Can I relate? Some of you sitting here this morning would say, I have no frame of reference for what you're talking about right now. I don't, I don't even know what I believe. I don't even know if I believe that God is real or if all of this is just some big joke. And maybe you're in a situation where everybody knows that about you. You've, you've stated that clearly. Like, I don't know what I believe or I don't think I believe in this, but, but I'm willing to investigate. Or maybe that's been something you've been hiding deep down because you don't want to disappoint people around you. And so you just sit here and you hear things like that and you just say, I don't, I don't know. I want you to hear this. One, as always, I'm just thrilled you're here and you're not here by accident. And you may not believe that right now, but I believe that. And I want you to hear that this is what God promises. This language that David uses, this is what God promises. He doesn't promise you some kind of better earthly life. He doesn't promise you health, wealth, and prosperity in the worldly ways. He doesn't promise you better morals. He doesn't promise you that, that your kids will always behave. It's not a parenting philosophy or a business philosophy. What he is offering you is what David says is better than all those things. And the testimony this is the testimony of those who have been transformed by the gospel. See, the problem a lot of times for us in, in a country that kind of is self-proclaimed Christian country, the problem with that is that you can easily get the wrong picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Because we just kind of all say like, well, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of Christian. And when you live in a country where Christianity is the default, like on the box, and you just say like, well, I'm Christian because I'm not something else. If you've been overseas in other countries, like a, a Muslim nation or a Hindu nation or something like that, you know that that's their default, right? So when we were in Central Asia, if somebody claimed like, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, I, that was not a marking the other box for them. That was like a statement of like, I follow Jesus. But here, it's different, and so you can get uh, the wrong picture because you can say, well, I know Christians. And that's my problem. I, I know Christians and they don't describe anything like this. They don't seem like they have any of this joy. And I just want to encourage you, don't, don't let a person who hasn't experienced what David's talking about here, don't let that determine your picture of what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, imagine if somebody said... Um, if you said, if you moved to this area and you said, hey, I've heard a lot about Lambeau Field. It sounds like, I mean, it looks like a lot of fun on TV. Like, it sounds like fun. And you're talking to somebody and they say, oh, totally not worth it. No, I wouldn't, get, you don't want to go down there. You know, I mean, you got you to drive down there. You got traffic around the stadium. You know, you got you to pay for parking then. And then you got to like walk all the way in and sit like in these uncomfortable seats. There might be Bears fans there. It's just totally not worth it. 
right? Like you don't, you, you don't want to do that. Like my, my couch is way better. I can sit, I can eat whatever I want. I can listen to whatever I want. You know, I can, I can watch it. I can change the channel. I, I, can, I can do whatever I want. And if you responded with, oh gosh, like so, so you've been there? Oh no, I've never been there. Never once. You wouldn't conclude from that conversation like, oh, all right, well that is now the expert on Lambeau Field. But we do that all the time with Christianity. We listen to people who are self-proclaimed not followers of Jesus telling you why Christianity is the worst or to people who claim to be Christians but aren't actually experienced what the gospel says that we'll experience. I want you that if you are seeking here, and I know I'm spending a little bit of time on this, but that's because I know that every week we have people here who are questioning their hearts and saying, I don't know what I believe about this. And I just want you to know how important you are and how much I love you and love that you're here, that I would speak this directly in this way. But I want you to do me a favor. If you are questioning and you are wondering, find somebody who talks about their faith the way David does in Psalm 63. Follow that person around. Find that person. A quick way to tell is if you ask somebody about their faith, if their, first, if their first things out of their mouth are about morality or about things that they do, just politely move on. But if their first things are about the God that they worship and about Jesus, and you can't get them to shut up about who he is and what he has done in their life, that's a person to listen to and to follow around and to learn from. And by the grace of God, we are trying to be that family here. And if you look around here and you talk to me, I will point you. There are people in this room who have been talking this way about God for 50, 60, 70 years. And it would be my joy to introduce you to them. So, that's one category. Some of you just know you don't know. Some of you don't know that you don't know. That's just the reality in any given church, especially here, like in, in this culture where we just kind of go along with it. And it's like, to be a good person, I go to church and you've, you've done everything you've been told. You'd say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I, I think I've experienced that, but this feels foreign to you. Maybe the issue is you, you've, you've kind of seen others respond in that way and you just always feel like, yeah, but that's just not my kind of faith. My kind of faith doesn't look like that. I just want to say that Maybe the issue is you haven't experienced the transforming power of the gospel. And maybe you have experienced what you've experienced is a religion or a set of moral values or a culture or a community that you feel like you've connected with and a group of friends. And at the end of the day, it's really not any different than you know, when all of us were in middle school and high school and we dressed like the people around us, we spoke like the people around us, but it wasn't really us. And if that's the case, then the scriptures say that you, you are lost. You're not experiencing abundant life. And I'm not saying that in a, in a judgmental way because I can't, I can't tell that. That is what Jesus says he will do. But it's, it's no more judgmental than the doctor who says, I think the tumor's still there, even if everybody else says it's not. Even if everybody else says, no, oh, you've been going to the treatments for this long, you've been doing all that stuff, as long as you've been doing everything they've been telling you to do, then you're fine. That, that tumor's not still there. 
But if it is, it's unloving to not say so. And I would say that the church is largely to blame for this because we don't like having uncomfortable conversations. We want to believe that, like, when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, we get them to come to church, that, okay, like, well, they've been attending church. Like, then that's, we're good, right? And, like, if they're in youth group, then, like, that's good, right? Like, okay, they've been going to Awana, and, like, as long as I can keep them going to the things and listening to the right things, like, then we're good, right? But that's not the gospel. The evidence of, of being bought by Jesus is that we belong to him, and there is an intimacy there. And I just want you to hear this and see this and say like, okay, well, that's normal. This kind of language about God is that's, that's what we're supposed to experience. And I don't know that I ever have. Then I would encourage you, then, then turn and repent and go to him. And he loves you. He is waiting for you. He is, he is wrapping his arms around you. He is not far from you. Some of you do know what this is like. You read that Psalm 63 and you're like, yes, I remember. But that's not where I am right now. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, like, I, I remember a time that I, I felt like this. Like, maybe you can even go back to journal entries and prayer entries where you just pour out your heart. And, like, those times in your life where you're like, I can't get enough of God's word. I can't get enough of being with God's people. And, and now you just feel like, oh, I'm just struggling. I can barely get myself to open the Bible. I have to drag myself to church if I even make it. I'd much rather talk about other things than about Jesus. And for so many, that becomes normal. And we settle and we attribute our, our former passion for Jesus as youthful zeal. But Jesus says it's much more than that. We know that because in, in Revelation, in, in a letter to the church at Ephesus, in Revelation 2, Jesus says this. In, in Revelation 2, 4, he says, but I have this against you. He's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying, hey, look, your works are good. Your knowledge is good. Your perseverance is good. Love all that. But he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I, I experienced this profoundly in my life. I've told this story in different ways, so this will be the Cliff's Notes version. But when I was younger in my ministry life, I found myself as a, as a person who believed in the authority of Scripture, I found myself in essentially what was a, a universalist church that did not believe that the Bible was authoritative, did not believe that Jesus was the only way to salvation, and I was supposed to teach the youth in this church. And so I did by teaching the Bible and teaching them that Jesus is the way to, to salvation and that there's no other name under which by men must be saved. And, and there was lots of battles around that and people were angry and it was very painful. It was a very difficult time, but I just felt like, okay, God, you're, you're asking me to do this. Like, I'm going to do this. And we saw incredible things happen there. But what was happening was I, I was so relating to this in Revelation 2 because I was fighting all these theological battles of the mind. I was trying to convince people like, no, 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 this is why God's word is trustworthy and, and, and we can submit to it. And no, this is why this is good news. And, and I, would, I would battle that intellectually. 
And I would battle it morally, and I would try, like, and ethically, and I would, and I would try to go against the things and teachings that were, that were not, that were trying to pull students in a different way. And while I was so busy fighting those battles in my head and with other people and other theologians and whatever, I completely neglected the battle in my own heart. And it all came to a head at a conference with these youth volunteers who I had battled alongside and recruited to say, we're going to teach these kids the the Bible. We're going to teach them about Jesus. And they love these kids. And they had followed me into that. And we're all standing around a table. And we're at a conference. And we're singing a worship song with a very simple line, this is the air that I breathe. And as I'm singing it, I just heard this voice inside me say, you're a liar. This is not the air that you breathe. And I just was like, you're right. And I collapsed in a heap of of sobs. And the Lord brought me to repentance. I lived out Revelation 2 in that moment. I could almost hear these words of Jesus saying, love that you're fighting this battle. Love that you're teaching people the gospel. Love that you're teaching the Bible. That's all great, but this is what I have against you. You've forgotten me. You've forgotten the love and the passion for me that you had at first. So repent. Notice that language. It's not just like a, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, let's just, let's just get a little bit better here. Let's like be a little more loving. It was repent. And I did on that conference floor. This kind of desire for the Lord that David is saying here and that Jesus talks about in Revelation 2 that John reveals, it's not icing on the cake. You hear us say this. It's not this nice-to-have thing. It's not a bonus. It's not a thing for super spiritual Christians. It is the thing. It is our passion for Jesus, our love for him, our desperation for him, our intimacy with him that then bears the fruit of all the other things that we tend to lift up as more important. Like It's because I'm passionately pursuing Jesus and feel that intimacy with him and desperately want him that I'm able to love my wife the way that I should, that I'm able to live the life that God has called me to live. It's only empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if we try to do these things over here without this, then it is worthless. And so it's not a nice to have. It is the thing, and I just want to encourage you that if you've forgotten that, like it's not just one piece of your spiritual life that has fallen off, it is threatening to destroy your life. So pursue it. Remember your first love. And some of you, of all those categories, some of you read this psalm this morning, Psalm 63, and you say, yes, hallelujah. That's where I am. Right now, I can't even, I can barely contain, like I walked in here and I'm just like bursting at the seams. I just, I, I couldn't wait to sing. And every, every word that we sang this morning, I was like, yes, amen, that's me. I'm there. Praise Jesus. And you're just overflowing with it. And what do we tend to do with that in this kind of environment? Pipe down, you. Okay, that's great that you're feeling that way, but we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Play it, keep cool, man. It's kind of like when I first met Lauren, and I was like, wow. 
And then I had this voice in my head like, I got I to gotta tell her how pretty she is. She's so pretty. I got to see, like, well, you, you want to hang out? Do you want to do whatever? And I got this other voice in my head going, be cool, man. Just cool it. Look, in dating, that's wise. I just don't want to call that wisdom. But in following Jesus, it's blasphemous. Don't contain that. This church needs you to let that out. And yes, I get it. We're different personalities. I'm not saying that everybody's coming and dancing. But I am saying that you should at least be as demonstrative as you are at a Packers game. Right? Like if you got that in you, then I know you got this. And I have seen, I, I coach a lot of youth sports, and I have seen what passion in you looks like when you're yelling at referees or at me. I get it. It's there. So let it out. Don't hide that. Because we need you. We need you. Like when I'm walking in here to preach and I feel like I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have this in me. Lord, I need help. I need help from the Holy Spirit. But one of the ways he gives that to me is when I watch Penny walk in with a smile of joy and hug somebody. I love it. When I get these like notes of encouragement or when people are in here and they're just, they're joyful. Like be joyful. We need you to do that. And other people need it too. Desperately. Be contagious. Like as we go into this series of making disciples and having these area lunches, be there. One of the reasons we want to do those area lunches is so you can hear what God is doing in your community. And if you're sitting there being like, Oh, I, don't, I don't want this to sound like, a, like I'm bragging or like it's that big of a deal. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. I don't want to make it about me. You're not. There's an easy way to not make it about you. Don't make it about you. Right? Just don't make it about you. Make it about Jesus. And show people and tell them and point them to it. That's the desperate testimony that we need, that the world needs. Someone that says, like, we're, he's better He's better than all those things. I worship him through all this. He's merciful and I'm feeling all this. I'm experiencing this right now so that other people can say, oh, that, I want that. And then when you're low, that person that you encouraged before now gets to be the encouragement to you. Because nobody is like that all the time. I mean, listen, for crying out loud, what, read the Psalms. David's like all over the place. And we are too. That's why we need one another. So how do we experience that? I spent entirely too much time on that, so I'm just going to kind of run these, and I feel like that's all right. But, but I just want to look at, like, how does David actually experience this? How does he actually pursue this? Because he says, I, I earnestly seek you. What does that mean? Well, one thing it means, he says he earnestly seeks. He is pursuing God. So as God pursues you, you are also pursuing God. And one of the big ways he does that is look at at verse 6. He says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So this is one practical thing I want to give you. Meditate on him day and night. Super basic, right? It's not going to blow anybody out of the water. Like, oh, I've never heard of that before. Right, so then do it. Experience it. Like, here's the thing. In, in our world, pretty much everybody agrees that the first thing you do when you get up and the last thing you do before you go to bed have a disproportionate impact on your day and on your life. You, you hear what I'm saying? Like, the very first thing you do in the morning, very last thing you do before you go to bed, that has a bigger impact. What you do at 6 a.m. is more important than what you do at 11 a.m. 
Like every sociologist, psychologist, like health fitness person will tell you that. What you do at 10 p.m. is more important than what you do at 3 p.m. It just is. Because the way you start a day, like think about it. They tell you if you're having trouble sleeping, what do they do? They don't talk to you about what you're doing at 11 a.m. What kind of lunch did you have? They don't talk about that. They always talk about what do you do before you go to bed. And they tell you things like don't look at your phone, don't watch TV, don't eat anything, don't drink anything, don't do anything fun. Basically stop existing for like an hour before you go to bed. And if they say like you want to be more successful and productive during the day, well then all the advice starts with like, hey, you want to be more productive? This is how you should handle 3.30 p.m. Nobody says that. They say this is what you do at the beginning. Have a morning routine, exercise, meditate, jump in the shower, whatever, have breakfast, whatever you do, but have a routine and get going because how you start the day has a disproportionate impact on the rest of your day. And anyone who knows the Bible would say, duh. Like think about all the times that we're told, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Or Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 5-3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Or what Jesus did in Mark 1, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. If you begin your day and end your day with prayer and with the word, that will help tremendously in this. Like over the years, I've had people, there used to be these debates over like, should you do your quiet time in the morning or in the evening? Remember these debates? Like, is it okay to do your quiet time at night or does it have to be in the morning or whatever? And we're like, oh, you know, it is embarrassing to me how long it took to realize there's also a very simple answer for that. Both. Like, why in the world do we ever get in our head like, oh, no, no, no. Well, obviously, spending just a little bit of time with God one time a day, that's like, the, that's the max. That's ridiculous. Like, just again, imagine me talking to Lauren and being like, all right, you have a conversation in the morning or you have a conversation at night. Your choice. <laughs> just so you know, I'll probably fall asleep at night. So if you really want me, you know, like, that's ridiculous. So do both. And if you're that type of person, you're like, look, I don't function in the morning great, then just get up and meditate and just sit in his presence and have your mind to him and save like deeper drinking from the well and deeper study for the evening. Or if you're like, man, at seven o'clock, I like start to zone out and I'm done. Well, great. Then get up early in the morning and drink deeply from the well then. And then the evening, let your prayer and meditation be like, God, I love you. (sighs) There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's actually quite beautiful means that the last thing you're thinking about in that day is God. What's better than that? So do both. So he meditates. He, he seeks earnestly. He remembers. So remember. He says, I remember you upon my bed. You have been my help. Just remember everything that God has done. Here's, I'm just going to make this really quick. Here's just a tip. I just came up with this. I've never tried it, so I don't even know if it works. But you try it and tell me. Right Every time you think of something that God has done, you remember God's goodness and his faithfulness and his mercy and his kindness. Write it down on a little slip of paper and put it in a jar. And then whenever, like at night or in the morning or whatever, is that starts to fill up, you just reach in and you pull out a random one. And remember, 
I remember when I was so scared for that test to come back, but God comforted me in the middle of it. Oh God, I remember of how I didn't know what was going to happen when we made that move and how you provided community and friends for me. Oh God, I remember how terrified I was when I confessed that sin and you, you, you forgave me and, and my brothers and sisters rallied around me. Try that. Third thing he does is he watches. He says, behold, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Go through your day and watch. If you're going to write those things down, then watch for them. Be in awe. Remind yourself when you see something beautiful in creation that he did that. Listen to the congregation sing and remind yourself that he stirred hearts to do that. Read his word and remind yourself that he gave that to you so that you could experience him and know him. Just watch him. David also preaches to himself. So preach to yourself. David reminds himself all the time of God's promises and he does it here. God, you are my God. Your steadfast love is better than life. You have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So when, when the enemy wants to discourage you with these other things, you can say, no, I, I preach to my own self. I know who God is. This is who God is. This is what he did through Jesus. This is what that means for me. I can't be separated from him. I know that he's going to work all things together for good. I know that he loves me. I know that he saves me. And then he's aware of God's presence. So as you're going through your day, we talk a lot about practicing the presence of God. This is just another one. Just, he says, my soul clings to you. Cling to him. Let that be your imagery. As you go through your days, you go through, interact with your family and with your coworkers and all that. Like, Be mindful that God is present. He is with you. He is a help. He is a comfort. He is an encourager. He's also calling you to something. And let that shape you. If you only feel like God is near you when you are at church, then the problem is not his presence, but your perspective. He's there and with us always. And David is confident in all of this because he is confident in God, not in himself. So as he says, I cling to you, my soul clings to you, he says, your right hand upholds me. And whenever I think about that, I always remember my, how my kids would, would cling to my neck in the swimming pool. And just cling for dear life. And because I'm me, I would sometimes be like, oh, I lost you. And, you know, but I get them. God is more mature than me, and he doesn't do that. He holds you. They, they, cling, they would cling, cling on to me as if their life depended on it, but I knew I had them. And in all my years of following Jesus, nothing has brought me more peace and comfort in the darkness and the dark nights of my soul than this promise. He has you. He upholds you. And yes, we cling to him and we want to feel that embrace and we want to pursue him or whatever, but he has you. So at the end of the day, when you're lying there in your bed and you're considering and you're giving thanks for who he is and what he has done and remembering the day, 
then praise God. And when that day has gone well and you're like, man, I feel like I, feel like I honored you today, God. I feel like I did what you called me to do. Like this is a good, full day. Then praise God for his grace and his goodness. And when you have a bad day where you say, God, I feel like I failed you at every turn. I feel like I failed you in every conversation. I wasn't obedient to you at all. Then you praise God for his mercy and faithfulness. I'm going to have the worship team come up and we're going to sing Psalm 63. And we just want to have you respond to that. And I just want to encourage you that as you sing this, like you sing this psalm together, I want you to consider like it can come from all kinds of places. My, my encouragement to you right now is just don't be dismissive of it. Don't sing it flippantly. Don't let yourself. Ask yourself, is this true? As you're singing it, is this true? And if you are in a place where you're like, yes, I, maybe, maybe this song, your voice is going to be lifted up celebrating the joy of tasting and seeing. Celebrating, God, you are my God. And I, yes, I seek you and I have experienced this. Thank you for holding on to me. Or maybe the singing is calling out, God, I remember when I used to experience this. Remind me. Please let me experience that again. Or maybe you're singing will just be backed by a heart that says, I want to experience this, God. I don't know that I ever have. I want to. If you have this for me, please give this to me. Or calling out for the first time this morning, I don't know what all this means, God, but I'm yours. And know that all of those cries I just listed are pleasing to God's ear. And he is listening. Let's pray. Father, help us as we sing this back to you. Help us to not be dismissive or flippant or just let another day go by, but let us actually, God, would you do that work? Holy Spirit, do the work in our hearts. And wherever we are coming from in this, that we would cry this out as earnestly as we can where we are and where we stand, knowing that you will meet us there and you will bring us home.